pastor, um, the Lord had called Pastor Reed to um, bring him to that church and go through the healing process. That church, as far as I understand it today, is a clear, vibrant light for the gospel in Dollar Bay, Michigan, in the Houghton, Hancock area. All by God's grace, not because of one man or a group of people, but just purely by God's grace. When I look at Pastor Reed, he's always been a man that I want to emulate. And I don't say that to raise any man on a pedestal because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. But Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I can clearly say that. I can imitate Pastor Reed because he imitates Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. He's been such a man of um, encouragement for me. And I'm thankful that I can impart um, maybe like a, a part of my spiritual growth to you this morning um, with this man. And I'm so thankful that he's able to come. So thank you, Pastor. Thank you. It's good to be here. When you get my age, it's good to be anywhere. <laughs> oh, my. When he was saying uh, about uh, Bethany Baptist went through a very difficult time, they called me. I wasn't sure whether he was referring to the difficult time was my coming. (laughs) So you have to have him explain that to you a little more. (laughs) Oh, great. uh, I've I've looked forward to uh, being back here. I guess it's been about uh, 30 years. Three years. (laughs) Three years since I was here. And uh, we have such good memories. Although... Do you have any state policemen in your audience? No. Uh, we were coming in uh, into uh, Duluth. Julie, please. Uh, we were coming into town, and uh, I don't know if you know where the one overpass is there. Uh, I saw some kids up there, and they flipped the box off over, and I swerved. Just when I swerved, a state trooper was coming, and of course he pulled me over for reckless driving. And I told him what happened. I said, he said, uh, I said, uh, some kids dropped the box off that thing, and I swerved to miss it. And he said, well, he took my keys, went back, and sure enough, he came back pretty soon. He said, what you said is true. There's a big box back there, and there are carpet tacks all over the, the road. But I still have to give you a ticket. And I said, why? He said, tax evasion. Oh. <laughs> Was that bad? <laughs> that was a joke. You may stay. <laughs> oh, great. So good to be here. I have a lot of questions that have been posed to me about uh, Cuba. And uh, I'll just answer a couple, three of them uh, right off. Um, one of the main questions was uh, has been, have things changed in Cuba uh, since uh, President Obama opened the door for tourism and people going down the tourist ships or pulling in there, unloading 
great loads of uh, tourists from the United States. Airplanes are flying out of Orlando and Tampa and out of Charlotte and other places now bringing uh, uh, people from the United States into Cuba. And it must be a wonderful experience for the Cubans. The problem has uh, been exacerbated by this. And I always hate to say this because we want things to be better. We want it to be better for the Cubans. They are in a, a difficult situation. Uh, after the uh, Soviet Union collapsed uh, back in 90, the, uh, I should, uh, should say, they, the people went through a very, very difficult time. They were making soup out of grass. And uh, no anesthesia for surgeries. A very, very difficult time for them. Mr. Castro put an edict out, or a little memorandum, or whatever you want to call it, to the people in Cuba recently. I get, I get probably four or five letters from Cuba every week. I have hundreds of friends. God has built within the framework of my life uh, some 13 uh, medical doctors that I am very close to, pastors, just uh, many, many pastors and people, just people who have become very dear to my heart. And I get letters from them. They said, Mr. Castro put a message out to the Cuban people, tighten your belts, because things are going to get worse. And we, we look at it and say, how could they get any worse? Uh, why would it get worse with what has taken place? Well, two reasons. You remember that during uh, the very difficult time, the Soviet Union was supplying all the or much of the food, the medicines, the machinery, uh, uh, all kinds of things to the Cuban people. But when that collapsed, it was pulled out, the rug was pulled out from under them, and then things got very, very bad. Well, Venezuela picked it up later and started sending in food and medicines and, and oil and machinery and all these kinds of things. But you know as well as I do, you watch the news, that recently Venezuela collapsed. Their economy just went down. It's probably worse there now than in Haiti. It's a very, people are struggling to stay alive. Well, that pulled everything that they were giving to the Cubans away from Cuba. Plus, on the other side of the ledger, the United States is sending thousands of Americans in as tourists and they're eating the food. They're using the gas for the taxis and for the buses to take them around the country to show them the horse-drawn carts and, and to see the poverty and, and see everything that uh, has not taken place over the, uh, the last many, many years since Castro took over. And so the, the food is gone from the Cuban people. If they do have money, 
They go to stores and the stores are empty. The shops don't have the beans and the rice. And so he said, tighten your belts because it is going to be bad. So as I look at the Cuban people and see this taking place, they say, you know, the, the, the tourists that are coming in uh, go certain places. They have their rules. And the buses and the taxis can only go into certain places where they show maybe some of the better parts of Cuba. But the Cubans are hurting. And our people look at that and they say, this is going to help the Cuban people, although there are certain things probably that will help. Some of the uh, horses that are pulling those little carts around, those men who uh, sit in that seat day after day, applying the whip to the horse, are making a few uh, pesos. Maybe they will make a few more, but that means that they pay the government a little more also. And so when you put it, what it all shakes down to is the fact that on one side, from our point of view over here, it looks like things are going to be better for the Cubans, but looking at it from the Cuban standpoint, it's not going to be better for them. What is this going to do as far as spiritual ministries? I think on one hand, God is pushing the people into a deeper relationship with him and a greater trust in his sovereignty and, and what he wants to do in, in their lives and not dependent on what we often refer to as from stuff, the stuff that we gather. And that is one of the dangers that the old pastors in Cuba relay to me is that if too much United States creeps into our society and changes our thinking about our world and about things and, and about where our heart is, that our people are going to lose their fervor for Christ. And my friends, right now, they, there's a great, just a great burning fervor within the hearts of the Cuban believers. Fervor in their relationship to the Lord. They want other people to be saved. And I mentioned in class that it has become the fourth largest church planting ministry in the world. Cuba. The gospel is sweeping across the country. Thousands of people saved. Churches established. Every year, many churches are established. And people like me and a few others have the privilege of going in and having our hearts touched and challenged and, and just burdened. And I say, God, give us that same fervor back in our country that these people have. But they look at me and say, we want what you... We, we, uh, we look up to you. We want the word of God given to us, please. 
explain the Bible to us. Many of them do not have Bibles. Mr. Castro destroyed thousands of Bibles, hundreds of hymn books, any Christian literature that he could find. It was ground to powder and then made into paper to print <coughs> communist propaganda. And so they, they look for the truth. They want the scriptures. And so it's a joy to be able to just open the Bible and to read to them and say, this is what God is saying to us. I'm not a great teacher. I don't look at myself as a great orator or pastor, a prayer warrior, but just someone that God has touched on the shoulder and said, I want you to go and have a part in this ministry. So as the people are being starved for physical food, their hearts are crying out in a greater way, I believe, for spiritual food. It's amazing to watch the Cuban people early in the morning. Of course, it's the same for all of us. You get up early and you go to work. And, but, you know, they, they get up and they don't know for sure where they're going to get food for the day. And so they're out there scratching and digging. And, and uh, I, I see things along the road. Uh, we, we see the big tractors with the big mowers that reach out and they can move them around and they keep the grass cut along the expressway or along highways. There you see men and women out there with a little scythe and they're cutting along there just to gather grass for their horse so that they can feed that horse or they can get to town. Um, you, you see them out there doing all kinds of things. Handmade brooms cleaning the streets. Say, they can do it so much easier. All they need is an international tractor or a Ford Ferguson or some other kind, uh, and uh, they could do it so much easier, but they don't have it. So, looking at Cuba, my heart is moved, and I trust that your heart need to take the people to Cuba. Forget about Haiti right now. Uh, take my place. My wife says, this is my last trip. She said that three times ago. I say, How, who do I listen to, Lord? You or my wife? And he said, your wife. <laughs> so, anyhow. One other question. Oh, uh, the uh, question was asked about about the gospel. I, th- I, be- I believe probably Rawl will leave the door open, and as Americans come in, um, they they are bound by certain things on their visa that they cannot uh, talk about certain things, <clears throat> and therefore the the people might not really. Uh, get a good view of uh, what we enjoy in our country. Although many of them do come over visiting and they see, they walk into to Walmart or Beehive or whatever it's called, uh, some of the big stores target, and they look around and they're awed because I go into their stores in Bayamo or in Havana and sometimes the, the counters are just 
covered with maybe homemade hats and, and it's just all the same hat filling up or maybe pipe fitting, uh, plastic pipe fitting or homemade shoes and they got them all spread out to fill up the, the, the uh, showcase because they don't have that many things to put out. And so people walk in and they look and they look. I, my interpreter said, most of them don't have any money to buy. They just want to look like they're deciding, what am I going to get, you know? So it's a, it's a very interesting place, poverty. The people are so poor, and yet they're so rich. They're so rich, yeah. Another question that comes to me, why did it go back? Lord willing, in November I'll go back. This will be my seventh trip. That's, that's not, nothing. I guess many people have gone maybe hundreds of times to places. But it'll be my seventh trip. And, you know, I'm at that age where I say seven. Boy, that's, that's a lot of trips for an old man. I, I told my doctor I feel, I've, I'm fit as a horse, um, an old horse. <laughs> he says, Yeah. <laughs> They say, How, why do you go back? I don't equate myself with the Apostle Paul. But there's a passage of scripture that I want to uh, drop on you today. That, And your pastor will preach on this probably and, and give you all the details. Of, but I'll just give you sort of a sketch of it. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why do you go back? I say, God, give me... Just build within my heart a, a burden for people. I want to have the right motives. I want to. I want to. I want to go. Not. Not so. It's not a, a notch on my belt, or it makes no difference what people think of me. But I just want to do your will. I want people to know about you and to love you and and to come to know you as Savior and. And I want them to grow and mature. And God has given me the privilege of pastoring for some 53 years. And, and I, I just, you know, if a church would open tomorrow, I'd say, should I or shouldn't I? But Second um, Corinthians chapter 5 just gives three little, or three little phrases that I believe motivated the Apostle Paul. I say, oh God, build this within my life as well. You know, one of the things that really pushed him was in verse 11. It just simply says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. And, and I just look at those few words right there for a moment. I say, you know, I, I fear the Lord, and I want to have a reverential fear of him. I was struck by lightning a few years ago, and I'm not really worried that it's going to happen again. I don't think God was being mean to me, although back in the book of Job, chapter 36, I believe, along in the end of the chapter, it says God holds the lightning, he holds the storm in his hand, and he causes the lightning to strike its mark. And I figure, if I'm the mark, no matter if I'm under the bed, 
or if I'm in the basement or wherever I am. If I'm the mark, I'm going to get struck. And so I can, I can rest in that just a little better. I, I don't fear the Lord that way. But he said, knowing the fear of the Lord, I try to persuade people. If we look back in the verses before, we, we see God is going to judge people. God is going to judge the quick and the dead. We're all going to stand before him someday. He has it appointed unto man once to die, and after that there's judgment. A service will be held for you and me someday, a funeral service. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, we, we want to be some, someplace else. But because we have a reverential fear for God, I say God has appointed unto these people, all people, a time when they're going to stand before him. And later I'll, I'll start, talk about what motivates me to, to go to those people. So the fear of the Lord drove the Apostle Paul to try to persuade men. Now, part of this passage is dealing with his relationship as an apostle. He wanted people to know that he was an appointed apostle from the Lord. But I interpret this also knowing that people are going to stand before God and I've got to, somebody, somebody's got to warn them. And so he's, he's thrusting us out there. He's pushing us out there to do that. It tells us in verse 14, for Christ's love, see that? For Christ's love compels me so, not only the fear of the Lord, but the love of Christ compels me to go out and to reach people and to let them know that God loves them very much. Jesus loved them. We don't look at Jesus, the verses following, say we don't look at Jesus just as the person who walked around doing miracles. He could walk on water, turn water into wine. He could do this kind of person, raise the dead. We don't just look at him as that kind of a person. We look at him as Savior. And we don't look at man as, well, Joe's a good neighbor of mine, or Jill, she's a real nice lady down the street. We don't just look at them that way. We look at them as people in need of the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul says, this drives me out into my world. It thrusts me. It's almost like a noose around my neck. That, that whole word is to just to take a hold of me and to pull me. He's got me corralled in to the point where I am willing to tell people about Jesus, about his love. So, I feared my father. I love my father very much. He had a big hand. I had a soft spot back here. <laughs> the two met quite often. <laughs> I reverenced him. I knew that he wasn't going to kill me. I thought, you know, sometimes I thought maybe it was going to happen, but but I loved my father. Uh, now 
always, when I got off the school bus, Ma, Dad, you know how it is. Hoping that somebody would answer. Lord didn't come. Take him and I'm left alone. But the one day when he had poured cement and then he went away and I had fun. I didn't really want to see him come home. Or the time my friend and I broke the windows out of a neighbor's abandoned house. It wasn't worth anything anyhow, but every window, plink, plink. And the knock at the door came during the supper hour, and then I heard my father say, Charles? You know, I love my father. I've reverenced him. But also, I, I feared him. And something within me pushed me to sort of toe the mark and to do the right thing. And I believe Paul is talking about these motivators in his life. I fear the Lord because I'm going to give an account to him. And the love of Christ is for the world, not just for the people who wear a suit or the people who live in the United States or in Duluth or, you know, not for, not just for white people. He's He's... He loves every person, and he died for every person. And he wants people to be saved. And then we come along to the latter part of the chapter in verse 18. And this is where we'll spend just a little more time. This Here's the, the, the command, or the commission, I should say, that, that God has given to every believer based on fearing him based on his love he he has given me he's given to you as a believer the commission to be an ambassador for him and to go to people and and to bring people together it just th- this whole passage down here he, he's speaking of the the commitment He's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. See, when God made man, put him in the garden, we know the story so well. Suddenly, man was going one direction, God is going the other direction. God could not stand to look at sin. He couldn't look at the sinner and, and be satisfied. Man was raising his fist against God, saying, I'll go my own way. And some of you are doing that today. You're saying, I'll, I'll, I'll make it on my own. I'm going to get to heaven because I, you know, God's going to put my good works in a, a, a scales and it's going to outweigh the bad and he's going to let me in. But listen, you are walking away from God. We all were walking away from God. And God is going the other way. But then we know the story. Jesus, in that great council, if we want to put it in human terms, the council of, of God, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Son, said, I'll go down and become a son. I'll become a man and I'll die for the sin of the world. Because we created this man to have fellowship with us and suddenly sin Rebellion has come in and moving apart. And so he came. He died. We know the story so well. And now Jesus looks at his father and says, See the prince in my brow. See my hands. I died. I paid the penalty for man's sin. And God says, I accept that. He turns back. 
to man. And with hands outstretched, he's saying, I will forgive you. Jesus goes to the unsaved person, the the non-believer, and says, I died for you. I paid the penalty of your sin. Come, God will, my Father will forgive you. You will be forgiven because of the blood that I shed on that cross. And so some turn, in a sense, humanly speaking now, turn and say, I accept that. I accept, Jesus, what you did on that cross. I accept forgiveness. And the fellowship is restored, see? That's the reconciliation that God is making through his son. But then his son left. And he committed to you and to me that ministry of reconciling man back to God. So we keep going where Christ was was showing his hands. In a sense, we're saying, he saved me. He will forgive you. And he's committed us to us the ministry of reconciliation. So he's trying to bring mankind back to the Father so that they can have good fellowship together and spend eternity in the place that he's prepared, see. So when someone asks me, why do you go back? It's hard. It's very, very difficult. You move into a communist country. You never know for sure what's going to happen. They're always informants. You wonder sometimes when you're doing business things or just getting your money out or something, you wonder what's, what's going to happen. When I land in a little place called Hogin, uh, from coming from Miami on my big jet and I walk into that, that uh, terminal and I see all these men and women who are uh, Cuban. Um, well, they want to they want to find something wrong with this man, and they're looking at me and they want to see what's in my luggage. And sometimes it takes uh, sometimes a long time. You have to open it up and unpack it, and then they're looking. The dogs are sniffing, and I'm saying, "Oh my land! I hope that that suitcase that I bought from thrifty a thrift store wasn't owned by some druggie. Uh, I'm in trouble for sure. Oh God, please have mercy on me. I don't know why I don't think about it before I leave, but you uh, never know what's going to happen. And so I say, you know. If God wants me to start a prison ministry in Cuba, so be it, I guess. I really am not, maybe, I told my wife, uh, it's according to how the election turns out this time, whether I stay in Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't a joke. (laughs) Why? Why do we do things? Why do we do things? Why does pastor labor away? Why? Uh, Is it because he loves the adoration that the pastor has put up on the, you know, and he's paid so much money and 
lives in such a beautiful house and everybody respects him and, uh, or the person who is a psychiatrist because he's trying to find out his own problems, how to solve his problems or, or the person who, whatever you do, why? Why are you doing it? Why are we worshiping today? Are we thinking about our motives? See? And the Apostle Paul, I believe, this drove him. In Acts chapter 20, it says along in verse 20, I came to you in all humility. I came to you in tears, the broken heart, fighting, yes, people fighting against me. Why are you doing this? He says, my heart is being pushed and thrust and compelled through my relationship to my Father. And so my, my prayer today is that you will have a new sense of the urgency of that person who lives next door to you or down the street or that you work next to or you go to school with and you do not just look at them as it says here in this passage we don't look at them just as a human another person but we see them as people who are in need and who need Jesus very desperately in November God willing, I will pack up again my suitcases full of all kinds of medicines and little goodies for people. And this year I'll be taking another man along with me, uh, attempting to um, sort of put the burden over on him, saying, you know, I'm getting old and I probably won't go again. Now, I want you to carry this, carry this on. That's why pastor preaches every week. Because we want you to catch that burden. And so we multiply. As Paul wrote, I teach one person, they teach another. But too many just come. We do our duty. We're here. We sing. We know when to stand. We know when to sit. We know when to put the offering in the offering plate. But when we walk out the door, it's sort of like our duty is done. We are servants of the Most High. He has commissioned us to become ambassadors for Him. An ambassador does not speak his own words, but the ambassador speaks only the word uh, that comes from his government or his country. I cannot speak what I want to speak, but I speak what he tells me to speak through his word. So this morning I just say thank you for allowing me to be here and to just sort of put a little more of the burden of Cuba on you. One of these days, our government will probably remove the embargo that they have against Cuba so that when we go, we can take food, we can take medicines, 
even prescriptive medicines. We can take machinery. We can take all these things. But today, we can't do that. I take, I take many things and just hope and pray that God causes that customs man to look with favor on me. And thus far, He has done that. Thank you for allowing me to come. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your love for us. You reached down in the midst of our, our sinfulness and You said, Your Apostle wrote, even while we were yet sinners, You died for us. You loved us and died for us. And we, don't, we can't fathom it. We can't understand it. But this morning, we once again commit ourselves to that commission that You've given to us to become ambassadors for You. You've taken our sin and You've given us Your righteousness. And we, we just say thank You. Thank You. Thank You for that. Because without You, we'd be so lost. Speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name, Amen.